Well, this is certainly not how we anticipated doing church in the middle of July, but we are used to the inconveniences at this point and a lot of the disruption to what is normal. We're getting used to that, I suppose, but I feel, especially for those who have had some very important things planned during this particular shutdown, like, uh, for instance, let's say you got engaged last fall and planned to get married, say, in April or May. Uh, that disrupts everything. But let's just imagine for a second, as long as we're imagining, that you did get engaged, you had a very handsome, and as long as we're imagining, let's just say very rich man that came to you and said, I want to marry you. And he gave you this amazing engagement ring, which I realize that some people have given their bride some amazing, amazing engagement rings. I read that Grace Kelly got from the Prince of Monaco a $4 million ring. I don't know what you paid for your wife's engagement ring, but that, that is, that's pretty impressive. And he gave her that, and along with a yacht, I think, some kind of engagement present. Those are kind of nice things. But as long as we're imagining, let's just imagine this very it's handsome and very rich man that got engaged to you last fall. He wasn't the, uh, the, the Prince of Monaco. Let's just say he was the King of France, as long as we're just pretending here. And uh, not, he didn't give you a $4 million engagement ring. He gave you a $40 million engagement ring. And instead of giving you a yacht, let's just say he actually gave you the entire French Riviera. Now, you're here in America. You're in Orange County. He's in France. You met online. I don't know. Let's, you fill in the blanks. And you uh, are all set up for this uh, wedding that was supposed to happen in, in May, let's say. And um, you've seen your Chase account go crazy. The, you know, the president of the bank has been calling you because you have all the assets of the whole French Riviera in your bank account now. And, and this has kind of been this long-distance relationship, but all of a sudden now, all the anticipation of you getting married and moving into the mansion there in Paris, all of that is now uh, put off. And from your perspective, you're very disappointed. Now, I just wonder how you would manage that disappointment as you... Uh, catch the glint of the $40 million engagement ring on your finger, or occasionally just run to your Chase account app just to see, you know, how much money you actually now have in your account. None of that's been realized, but it's there. I just wonder if that could help get you through the disappointment that your wedding could not be in May. Maybe it'll have to be in November or December. I, I think maybe you could get to sleep at night saying, it's okay. I've got enough of a promise here from the King of France that I am going to be married and I'm assured of where I'm headed and you know enough about preaching to see exactly what I'm doing with this illustration, right? Smile at me if you get it. The Bible's very clear about this. As a matter of fact, when we start to doubt because things have been prolonged, the Bible says you need to be very careful that you don't get discouraged, that you don't get down, that you don't get frustrated that you recognize that God has done everything to remind you that his promises are sure and that where he's taking you, he's going to take you and he's made it very clear. And as Paul said to a group of Christians, we don't often think of it this way, that were under persecution in Rome and didn't have a great government, by the way, that was leading them. As he writes those Roman Christians in chapter eight, he says, he who gave his son right? He gave him to you as a sacrifice. What a great, amazing gift that that was. He said, will he not with him freely give you all things? And that was a statement to a group of people that were beginning to doubt. Their attitude was being negatively affected. They weren't thinking the way that they should. They weren't as courageous or as bold as they should have been. They didn't have the optimism they should have had. And he says, listen, if Christ did that, won't he do this? You just need to be patient. Oh, I know you're groaning, he says in Romans chapter 8. 
along with all creation, as he personifies creation, all of the creation is growing. None of this is great. Matter of fact, none of it is even good. There's little snippets here and there that remind us that God's grace and glory is reflected in the world, but it's not at all what we want it to be, and it's not at all what we need it to be. But he says, you guys need to be thriving internally. You need to have a kind of optimism that never lets you down because you realize and recognize that God is going to keep his promise. I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I want you to look at 10 verses with me this morning that will remind you exactly where we need to go. And if you start saying, by the way, if you start to yawn and you start saying, well, you know what, this sounds a lot like last week's message. Can I remind you of this? As Paul said in Philippians chapter 3 verse 1, you know, it's no trouble for me to write the same things to you, he says. And really, it's a lot easier for me to keep repeating the same sermon every week. That would be helpful for my study. But he said, you know what it is when I start repeating myself, Paul said, it's a safeguard for you. It's a good thing. If I'm a football coach and I know there's a really intimidating middle linebacker out there and he can really take you out and we got this play where you're going to run right up the middle, I, I just need to tell you one more time in the middle of this huddle that you need to be sure that you understand what we're up against. That you need to be careful and do exactly what we've said because there is something that wants to take you down. And when it comes to Satan in this world, all he can do, he can't touch your eternal security, he can't touch where you're headed, but he can discourage you. He can mess up your attitude. He can get you to a place where you're not reflecting the kind of internal disposition that God expects us to have as his children so I just want to warn you one more time. This sounds a little bit like last week, right? It, 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 a different passage. It's a similar theme, but please bear with me and recognize in the sovereignty of God, in the will of God, maybe this is the message we need to hear a few more times in the midst of this shutdown, okay? So look at this passage with me and recall the context, okay? Go up in chapter four. Matter of fact, there's some very familiar passages here in chapter four that you'll remember. Look at verse number seven. Sunday school grads are going to go, oh yeah, I remember that passage. But we have this treasure. This is 2 Corinthians 4, verse seven. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Oh, we're afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. And that kind of dis distinction between the external events of Paul's life and the internal disposition that's never going to be completely torn down, that he's never going to be crushed, that he's never going to be despairing, that he's never forsaken, verse 9, that he's never destroyed. All of that is the kind of attitude we ought to have when things start to get uncomfortable for us. And I say that in light of the contrast of a lot of people that are going through a lot more than disruption and discomfort, right? Christians have throughout the generations, experienced the kind of pain and persecution that's so great compared to the small things we're going through now. And I don't mean to minimize how, how frustrating life is right now, but I do need to remember that there are people like the Apostle Paul that show us that there's a lot that can happen to the externals of our lives, but real Christianity is going to power through that with the right kind of attitude, right? We're not crushed. We're not despairing. We're not forsaken. Drop down to verse 14. I mean, we really look to the horizon as he says, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence, right? That's always the hope. And I say it all the time, whenever I'm preaching to you, that you need to remember the Christian life is not about the here and now. It's about the then and there. And let me say it again. It's not about the here and now. It's about the then and there. And everyone who wants to tell you that Christianity is about the here and now is, as I tried to illustrate last week, just trying to get you to rearrange all of the stuff on the deck of a sinking ship. 
Now, I understand there may need to be a place to sit down that you have to care about. Like you need a home, you need a job, right? you got to pay your mortgage, there's lots of things, you got to buy a car. All those things you need to do in the listing deck of the sinking ship. But you need to remember this, that God has said what really matters is what's right there in that verse. And that is, you need to know that as God has raised Jesus from the dead, he's going to raise us too. And the whole point of this is to reflect what he's already reflected in this biographical section of chapter 4, and that is verse 16, that we do not lose heart. And maybe as a pastor, I'm repeating this theme again because I'm reminding you that many people are losing heart. They're not reflecting the kind of fortitude in their spirit that they need to have. We as Christians of all people, if there's a storm, we should be like Christ asleep on the cushions of the ship saying, it doesn't matter. We are not disrupted by this. Oh yeah, we're inconvenienced. Our schedules might be disrupted, but our hearts aren't disrupted. We don't lose heart because we know that the things, drop down to verse 18, that we're looking to, that we can see, well, those things, he says, bottom of verse 18, they're transient, they're going away. But the things that are unseen, at least unseen now, those things are eternal. And as we sit here in a parking lot, black asphalt with pop-ups over your head, I hope you realize that everything that we have in this world is transient. All the experiences we have, anything that's good, just a touch, just a taste of something eternal. God's got so much better for us. And that's our hope. And that's what we're all about. Now in verse 1, here's the 10 verses I'd really like us to look at. He says, for, and the reason I had to go back to chapter 4 is because that 4 is transition, is a transition into this chapter saying all the stuff I've just said, which is really about looking ahead, good attitude, no matter how bad it might get. He says, for we know that the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, that if it's destroyed, and of course it will be, we have a building from God, tent and building. Remember, by the way, when you read about Paul in Corinth, the first time we see that in the book of Acts, do you know what he's doing? Think about it, Sunday school grads. He meets up with a couple, Priscilla and Aquila, and all together they have a trade, and what's their trade? They make tents. That's what he did. He didn't want to charge people for the missionary work that he did in lands as he traveled around, reasoning in the synagogues, teaching them about the Messiah and how the Old Testament looked forward to Christ. But as he was going about it, instead of passing a plate as a missionary, right? He had no sending church. He had no missionary organization to pay his bills. He, on the side, worked as a bivocational minister, and he made tents. So why do people need tents? They, backpacking was big. They had REIs there. What was that about? Well, it was an important part of life. For, for particularly on the Mediterranean Sea, if you were a fisherman, most of the fishermen, when they were done out on the ocean fishing, they would come in, depending on where they were fishing, and they would pitch a tent and they would live there by the shores of the Mediterranean until they got back on their boat and went back out. And people traveled, right? They took their Motel 6 with them by packing a tent that they would use, pulling off the, the well-trodden path to pitch a tent so they could sleep. Of course, the, the Jews had pilgrimages to Jerusalem a couple of times a year. They needed tents for that kind of thing. So Paul made those tents. And those tents were never designed for you to live in them. As a matter of fact, there were people, stonemasons and carpenters that could build you a house, but he knew what it was to create something that was never meant to be permanent, right? We got pop-ups over your head. These are, this is not our new auditorium, right? This, this is just permanent. That's our temporary, not meant to be permanent. We, we have a building. We want to be in a building. If it rains, if there's wind, I'm not much for tent camping. You might be, and I don't know. Maybe you should see someone about that. But there, there are reasons that we prefer to be in buildings that when there's weather or, you know, critters or whatever, we get those people, they're out. They're, they're not going to bother us because we have a permanent structure. 
Matter of fact, this word here for tent is the same word that is used for the tabernacle as we talk about the Old Testament structure that wandered around and they had to pitch tents, they had pegs and ropes and when the wind blew, they needed to make sure it didn't fall over. That was the tabernacle and then, of course, we were concerned about building a temple, a permanent structure, which, of course, God allowed Solomon to do and then we had this big fortified structure. He's making that comparison as a tent maker saying, hey guys, in Corinth, you've, I've sold some of you my tents. He says, you've got to realize this, we're living in a tent. We're living in a tent both here in our bodies, which I think is the focus of the passage. We're living in a tent when you look around at this world, the trees, the sky, everything here. It's a temporary, transient tent. The things that you can see, they're going to go away. And when our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. A house, there's our permanent dwelling, not made with hands, but it is eternal in the heavens. For in this tent, verse 2, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed, by putting it on, we may not be found naked. Now think about it. Death is the, by definition, is the separation of software from hardware. Your body, when your software goes away, we call that dead. You're dead at that point, right? Because you're no longer there. As Jesus gave up his spirit, that's death. Separation of spirit and body, that's the definition of death. That spirit now is no longer encased or enmeshed in a piece of hardware, your body. We call that death. But now it is, as this text says, you're naked. Another word for it, if you want to be more specific and not use the analogy, it's a disembodied spirit. No, never made to be naked or disembodied. God breathed into the body that he had just made, the hardware out of the ground, he breathed into him the breath of life and he became a living soul. Well, that's what God designed for human beings, but you can exist outside of your body and you will when there's a separation, a disconnection of those two. And he says, we are longing to put on our heavenly body. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked because that intermediate state, that disembodied state, that's not, that's not going to be natural for us. Verse 4, for while, we will, for while we are still in this tent, we groan, there's the reflection of Romans 8, that theme there, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, not like we want to be a disembodied spirit, but that we'd be further clothed so that what is mortal, this mortal body, this tent that you see can be swallowed up with something permanent, that permanent building that God is going to give us, a resurrected body, which he spent an entire chapter in the first letter to the Corinthians explaining what it's all about. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God. Did you, are you stuttering? No, no, no. I, I'm repeating that because think about what that is saying to you. The purpose that you're here is not to live in the tent state of this passing transient world, this imperfect place called earth. It's about you having the new heaven and new earth coming out, down out of heaven like a bride prepared for her husband. Something that is eternal in the heavens being brought down and given to us. And you then get a new body, a resurrected body. And that's what God designed. That's the purpose. He has purposed you for that very thing. God, the architect of all things. Oh, and by the way, one of the reasons you know that that's coming for you, you want to talk about the engagement ring. Here it is. He has given us his spirit as a guarantee. You want to do a little word study on that with your Bible software, you should, because that word literally means, in the original language, the idea, the compound word that presents that idea of guarantee is, is first installment, first payment. I mean, you're going to get the mansion in Paris because you're going to be married to the, to, to, to the king of France. But here's the down payment. I gave you the 
French Riviera and I gave you a $40 million ring and that's just the down payment. It's the first payment of all that I'm going to bring to you. So, now back to the theme of chapter 4, verse 6, we are always of good courage. You want to know why the pastor might be preaching this theme over and over and over again during this shutdown? Because I want to see that in my life and I want to see that in your life. We are always of good courage. We are always of good courage. That's the whole point of this message. We need to be encouraged. We need to be courageous. We need to be bold. We need to have that sense that God is taking us in the direction that is good and nothing in this world can get us off of that task in terms of our heart and our mind and our attitude. We are always of good courage. For we know that while we're at home in the body, and that home, by the way, is a tent, it's temporary, we're away from the Lord. That's not what we like. That's not what we want. We've never really been with the Lord personally, obviously, but we'd like that. We've got a taste of that. For we walk by faith and not by sight because we don't even see him. No one's seen him. Peter says, you, 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 you haven't seen him, but you love him. That's the, the dynamic of the Christian life. I, I pray to Jesus. I sing to Jesus. I think about Jesus. I read about Jesus in the Bible. I've never seen him, never met him. Don't know how tall he is. Don't know what he looks like. I, I, I'm in a relationship with someone I've never met. I'm away from the Lord as long as I'm here in this transient body. You want another reason that we should all be wishing to be on to the next life? I mean, that ought to be, if you love God, that's the reason. You can't sing a worship song and then say, well, now I'm at home here. For we know that while we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, to repeat verse six, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. There's a standard right there. I just put it down. Bam, there it is. Where's your life in relation to that? I mean, is that where you're at? I mean, would you really rather be there? Paul says in Philippians chapter one, not only would I rather be there, it would be far better for me to be there. Again, one of the reasons we have recurring themes sometimes in certain elements of our uh, our periods of our lives as, as Christians and certainly in a congregation like ours is because that's what we need to have. We need to have that desire to see ourselves there. That's the whole point. That's what God has made of. He's purposed for us this very future. Now, in the meantime, he says in verse 9, whether we're home here or away, disembodied, or in that permanent state, we make it our aim. We know that our goal is this, to please him. You're engaged to this one. He is your, your king. He is your, your husband in Christ. That's the picture. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, speaking about good courage and having the right attitude and all this seeing things prioritized the way that God does, the eternal things that I can't see that are coming and the temporal things here. Am I exalting those things? No, I got to think about that coming judgment. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Three things really quick I want you to jot down. Number one, when it comes to this in verse number one, And verse number five, look at verse one again. This tent, no, it's going away. Got a building, it's coming. How do I know it's coming? Verse five, he's prepared it for us and he's given us the spirit as a guarantee. You see verse one, verse five? Jot this down. Number one, you need to be confident, confident, confident that the best is yet to come. Jot that down. Be confident that the best is yet to come. It's no trouble for me to repeat that theme, but it's a safeguard for you. 
That's what we need. That is the attitudinal adjustment that we need that the best is yet to come. We say it all the time. The prosperity teachers that keep telling you that your best life is now, right? First of all, I hope the book sales are down right now for all the prosperity preachers. But I think to myself, if this is your best life now, as others have rightly pointed out, well, then you're not going where we're going, right? You must not be going where we're going because this is not to be your best life now. As a matter of fact, Paul made it very clear. There's a lot of persecution. There's a lot of being struck down. There's a lot of being opposed. There's a lot of things that are going to disappoint us, but we're not made for this world. We recognize that. Be confident that the best is yet to come. Be confident. Be confident. Be absolutely 100% confident. And you can go back up to where we started in verse number seven of chapter four. We have this treasure, this treasure, this hope, the spirit of God who gives us this confidence about the future. We have it in jars of clay. It's going to be a bit of a very uncomfortable period of time that's going to be constantly reminding me that this is not what we want, but we're going to power through it. Verses two through four, second observation, second Corinthians chapter five, verse two, for in this tent we groan, hopefully I don't have to elaborate on that, hopefully you've had a little groaning here going on recently longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. We need an eternal home, an eternal place, an eternal body. For while we're still in this tent, we groan being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed. Not just say I want to die and float around as a disembodied spirit. No, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up in life. That kind of positive perspective is the thing, number two, that helps us to power through the present reality. I want to power through it with the right attitude. I can, can I have the right attitude and still groan? Absolutely. I can groan in hope. I can be burdened in hope. I want you to think about that. The idea here of even burden, you can circle that word or highlight that word. That's the word that is used in other parts of the Bible to describe the heavy eyelids of the apostles when they were in the Garden of Gethsemane and they were told to watch and pray and they were falling asleep. Remember that passage? And, and the, the, the Bible there says their, their eyes were heavy, right? The same word, burdened. Picture that. Speaking of camp, uh, uh, tent camping, right? If you've been on a tent camping trip, I remember going on a, on a seven-day, a week-long camping trip in the High Sierras. And it'd be one thing to sleep in a tent every night, but as we continued to go back into the depths of who knows where back there, uh, I, I think to myself, it would be a lot easier if I didn't have to carry this backpack on my back. I have to carry my tent every day and put it back together and put it in the thing and then travel with it. That, mean, that, that's, that makes it hard. It's a struggle. And when I got so far back in there that I realized tent camping is not for me, and I was 15 at this time, I thought to myself, you know what, I can't wait as we turn around and start marching our way back. And every day, picking up that backpack and saying, I'm going to get to McDonald's, I'm going to get to McDonald's, I'm going to sleep in my own bed. Those feelings of saying, I want to go home. I don't want to be in the tent anymore. I don't want more mosquito bites. I don't want, to, I don't want this backpack and the aching feet. I can groan and hope. I can say, I know I'm burdened now, but I can't wait to be where I'm supposed to be. I can power through all of this. Power through the present reality. I assume there's some groaning going on in your life. There are pictures in scripture, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, James chapter five, verse nine, this idea or this picture, same exact word, this, this picture of being burdened or groaning. We see the, the Greek word translated in different ways about people that, that make us groan and burden, we're burdened. Matter of fact, even the word grumbling, you think it's the word complaining there in James 5 that we're not supposed to grumble against each other. It's really the word burden. 
Stop, stop your, your, your burden, your being burdened over these people. Right? I don't want to express that. I don't want to be negative, but we're all going to feel it. I mean, there are people that, that make us groan. There's things in our lives and our bodies that make us groan as our bodies waste away. All of that is a struggle. And yet Paul says, I can have a spirit that's advancing. I can have a spirit that is fortified with strength. I can have a spirit that has the right disposition in the midst of all of this. Power through the present reality. It's going to feel like you're carrying a backpack, but carry it with a great sense of hope. And the hope in this passage is all the mortality, all the problems, all the issues of this temporal life are going to be swallowed up with life. That's a really dramatic way to put it. Jesus used that word once when he talked about the Pharisees that were straining out the gnat, the little insect, but they were swallowing the camel. It was a sarcastic, comedic statement, but that idea of swallowing something. And here is our, our future. It's coming. And our future is coming to swallow up this life. Our future eternal body, swallowing up all the imperfections of this fallen body. This society, the leadership, the government, all the problems, all going to be swallowed up with something perfect. Swallowed up with something that is rightly depicted by the word life, how good it's going to be. Yeah, we have this treasure in jars of clay. But in the midst of all of that, God's power should reside in us to not be crushed, to not be despairing, to not be destroyed, to just like Jesus, power through it all, even in the midst of our own garden of Gethsemane, to say, I can get to where God is going to take me through this life because I know what's on the other side of the cross. Swallowed up in life. Well, let me just have you jot down number three, verses six through 10. We're always of good courage. That's the whole point. Verse eight again, we're of good courage. And then sprinkled throughout are four things in this passage that are supposed to give us that good courage. I put it this way, bolster your courage by ellipsis, dot, 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 four things. So my third point, if you're following in this way, you're trying to organize your, your, your page here, bolster your courage by, and in this passage, verses six through 10, I got four things that Paul is going to tell us that is going to challenge me to make sure that my attitude is courageous, it's positive, it's optimistic, it's filled with the kind of confidence that God would have me have, a courage and a confidence. Well, what is that? Well, the first thing here, verses six and seven, we're always of good courage while we know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. But here's the thing, all of that comes down to one word. We walk by faith, not by sight. We walk by faith. I've got to have an absolute assured hope and confidence. Biblical hope's not cross your fingers hope. It's a confident assurance. I know where I'm going. And I know that this is all about me having a strong faith. Faith. That word is often misunderstood. People think it's believing something we know is not true. Of course, that's not what faith is in the Bible. Faith is an assurance, a trust, a confidence. And so we need to have that. And I guess I got to have some sub-sub points here because if I say, I need more faith. I need more faith to have the right attitude so that I'm not dispositionally wiped out by the circumstances of my life. Well, you're going to need some basic things. Just like when someone gets sick, they go to the doctor and they're hoping the doctor can give them some super shot that's going to help them just get better immediately. We always want that. Give me some pills, give me some shots. And sometimes you, you go to the doctor, you got a common cold and the doctor sends you home and you're really disappointed because the doctor says what you really need is a lot of fluids, you need more rest and maybe some chicken soup. Have that. And you're thinking, wow, I'm paying you all this money for you to tell me that. I could have done that myself. Well, you may feel that way at church too, but we didn't pass the plate. So let me give you some, just some simple information that you'd say, I could have figured this out. If you need more faith, 
Okay? Here's what you need. Number one, you need more prayer. You've got to have more prayer. I mean, here is Jesus looking at Peter saying, Peter, you need to have faith to power through the temptations that are going to come in Caiaphas' courtyard. He says, I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. I prayed for you so that your faith doesn't wane. I prayed for you. That's what you need. You need more prayer. You need to pray. You need to get people to pray for you. You need more time talking to God about your confidence that you should be having in all the things that he said. Pray for your faith. Pray. Your prayer life. Prayer itself is an expression of faith. I mean, you're talking not to the ceiling fan. You're talking to God. It's an exercise of faith just to get on your knees and start talking. Faith. You need to pray. And the next thing is very clear. Romans chapter 10 says, right? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word, the word of Christ. You need more Bible. Prayer and Bible. Sound familiar? That's what your grandpa used to tell you you needed. That's exactly what we need. We, we, need, more, we need more prayer for our faith. And we need more we need more Bible. You've got to have more scripture in your life. I mean, it's been good to have people respond well during the shutdown to talk about how, yeah, we're getting into the Second Peter studies. We, we, we're doing the morning devotionals. You know, that really wasn't a regular part of our life. Here, here's the thing. That needs to be a regular part of it. You need to double down on that. That needs to be the thing that you say, well, I need to read the Bible. I need to study the Bible. I need to memorize the Bible. I need to meditate on the Bible. I need more Bible. Not going to survive and have the kind of faith that's going to change your attitude and disposition and bolster your courage if you don't, in your life, have more Bible. Can't make it between weekends. Sundays aren't going to do it. Need more Bible. Just like if you go to your favorite restaurant once a week and say, well, I'll be back for another meal in seven days. Well, well, I hope you eat between Sundays. You have to. It nourishes you. And just stop just drinking milk. The Bible says in, in Hebrews chapter 5, a lot of people just love to go back to the same basic things. Just keep reading Psalm 23. He says, you need meat. It's going to grow your bones and your muscles spiritually. You got to have the deeper things. He starts to talk to them in, in Hebrews 5 about Melchizedek. And he's like, wow, it's like jamming you know, a, a steak down a baby's mouth. They're not even able to take it. Why? Because they're infantile. Because they don't have a good intake of the Bible. The writer of Hebrews wants to be able to talk about stuff like Melchizedek, and he's afraid that they, they can't do it. He uses the word nothros, this Greek word. It means that you just become lazy in your intake of Scripture. So we need to not be lazy about the Bible. We need to be in it. We need to be studying it. Of course, number three, when I think about faith, the faith of people in Scripture is always boy, bolstered by other people. I think about passages like 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11, when talking about the community and their need for faith, he says, we've got to encourage one another and build one another up. The word edification. I need that strong faith in my life by having other Christians in my life. And one reason, by the way, in Romans chapter 1, verse 11, is because people have different aspects of God's grace entrusted to them in their giftedness. And Paul says, I want to come to Rome so that my spiritual gifts can strengthen your faith. And that's the thing. I need other Christians in my life. If I'm not inter inter interacting with other Christians, I'm not going to grow my faith. Again, what did I just say? Well, you need more prayer, you need more Bible, you need more fellowship. Didn't have to come to church, didn't need a seminary grad to tell you that, right? But that's what we need. If we're going to grow our faith, we certainly need the staples of the Christian life. More prayer, more Bible, more fellowship. Verse 8, not only that, he says, we're of good courage, because we'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And again, I just got a quote. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. I know this is redundant, but write it down anyway. We need to remember, right? 
This life isn't it. Just remember that. Remember that every day. Get up every day and say, this world is not my home. Just like Abraham, just like Moses, just like Jesus, I realize this, this world isn't my home. Not about this life. This is not the wedding. This is an engagement, and it's a trouble-filled engagement. And the engagement seems to be protracted and prolonged. Focused on eternity is what we need. And a lot of people, as they said to C.S. Lewis, you're making Christians so heavenly-minded they're no earthly good, and his response was appropriate. We're really no earthly good as Christians until we are heavenly-minded. You've got to get your hope in the right place. Then I can be effective here on earth to do more than just rearrange the deck chairs. I can really see people get in the lifeboat. I can build the kingdom. The only reason Jesus hasn't consummated this bride of Christ, this thing called the kingdom, is he's looking for a heftier bride. Now, that's a weird analogy. Brides are trying to lose weight. But, but God was very clear. Christ is going to be dispatched to get his bride when it's the full bride of Christ. We need more people saved. That's the point. Remember, this life isn't it. We're here to do the job that God has asked us to do, to be his ambassadors for a message. I know we've got to look at our Chase account sometimes and see, yeah, we have heaven coming. This is where it's going. To look at the ring that he's given us, the spirit in our lives and say, yes, this is where we're headed. I'm going to focus on the next life because I know it's not about this life. Letter C, verse 9. It says in verse 9, so whether we're at home or away, we may make it our aim to please him. I love any passage that talks about an aim or a purpose. We need to aim at something. The old adage, aim at nothing and hit it every time, I mean, that certainly is the way a lot of people live their Christian life. They, they don't get up in the morning and they don't think, here's how I can please God today. God, I want to figure that out and I want to shoot for that. More than just doing what the boss says, more than just getting through my to-do list today, more than just going to the grocery store and filling up the pantry with food, how can I please you today? The Bible's very clear that that ought to be our perspective. And people that don't do it at the end of the day, they just think, well, God, I'm sure my life was pleasing to you because my picture's on your refrigerator and I know you like me a lot, so I'm sure I was just, I'm sure you were really happy with my day. We throw the dart, we draw the bullseye around it at the end of the day and think, well, I'm sure it was fine with God. Let me challenge you to think very clearly about what the Bible says, to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Get up in the morning and say, what would please God today in my life? Think that through. He says that in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. He says, think about what you were. Think about what the fruit of light should all be about, what is good, what is right, these righteous things. Now, in the morning, get up in the morning. And I say morning because as we plan our day, we need to think, what is it that will please you? Discerning what is pleasing to the Lord. So I put it this way, consider how to please God and consider how to please God today. Do it on a daily basis. You want to have that bolstered courage. Well, you got to fortify your faith. You got to remember this life isn't it. And you've got to consider how to please God in a very specific set of objectives every day. God has prepared good works for us to walk in. We better figure out every day, what are those good works today? How can I be light? How can I be salt? How can I make a difference? How can I be a representative of the gospel? How can I be a good ambassador? How can I be in all the spheres of my life who God has called me to be? Be specific about that. In verse 10, Seems like we've ruined a very encouraging text of Scripture with this foreboding sentence in verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or bad. I think, wow, right? I was starting to feel encouraged, and now the courage goes away. And I'd say this, don't be discouraged by this verse. Be motivated by the verse. 
And here's how I would say it would help to bolster your courage. I put it this way, letter D. You need to be thinking about your first day there. Think about your first day there. The kingdom's going to come. You're going to get your resurrected body. The first day you're in your resurrected body, the first day the world is behind you and eternity is before you, I want you to think about that first day. What's that going to be like? The Bible says you're going to meet God. According to 1 John chapter 3, you're going to be like him because you're going to see him as he is. So you're going to be different. All the stuff that was messed up in this world behind you. Now you're going to start eternity. And the Bible says it's going to start with an evaluation, a judgment. Now, please think about the judgment, the way the Bible presents the judgment in the scripture. There are two kinds of judgment, just like there is in our day. If I said, I, I, the, here's what the judge said to me, you're going to wonder, was it the judge at the county fair or was it the judge at the superior courthouse? Which judge are you talking about? Because one judge wants to punish me and one judge wants to reward me. And that's a judgment that we need to make clear in scripture for us. And let me be super clear. If you sit here today, the Bible is so clear about your sin. The sin of your life has been appended to the cross. The sin of your life has been paid for by Christ. The sin that you've committed and the response that a holy God should have, he treated his own son as if he were the one who did all those things. He was the absorption and the target of all of God's retribution for every Christian that sits here listening to my voice this morning. Your sins have been removed from you as far as the east is from the west. But according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that doesn't mean that you're not going to be evaluated. In this passage, there's going to be a judgment seat, the word bima, a raised elevated platform where the king's going to say, okay, here's one of my subjects and we're going to start the evaluation. And what we'd hope to hear in a phrase is well done, good and faithful servant. I'd like to hear that, but not everyone's going to. As a matter of fact, the word that's used in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is that some people will suffer loss on that day. Is it suffering? Well, it's a suffering of loss. There may be some embarrassment about a lot of things we didn't do that we should have done. Could be a lot of embarrassment about buying the culture that we lived in, exalting things that God says, transient, temporary, not important to me. And they became the focus and enduring goals of our lives. And a lot of that, the Bible says, just gonna be wood, hay, and straw. And all of that's just gonna be wiped away, gonna be burned up. What we're looking for is gold, silver, and precious stones. So my response in the engagement period before I get to my mansion in Paris is for me to say that everything that was done right between me and my, my husband-to-be, my fiance, is that I have lived for him with the right priorities and done the right things. And for every last one of those, the Bible says he's going to reward us. Not a cup of cold water will be given in his name that Jesus says you will lose your reward on. So the, the good, I just need to understand what the good is. The good is that I'm going to be rewarded richly and lavishly. And it does motivate me because I realize today I can get up and not even think about pleasing the Lord, not even think about having the right attitude. I can spend all day complaining instead of having the courageous and bold kind of attitude that God is asking for in a passage like this, the confidence that I should have. So I want to work toward that. I want to see that evaluation as a motivation a loss of reward is something I don't want, but no condemnation for us. The Bible makes that very clear. We're not destined for wrath, but for obtaining salvation, to quote 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. But as it says, even in verse 10, in that next verse, it says, he died for us, that whether we're awake or asleep, we might live with him. And what I want to do is please him, according to this text. We need to please the Lord. You know that old hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. You've probably heard the story behind it. Horatio Spafford 
businessman in Chicago, was delayed in his business dealings in Chicago, so he let his family, his wife and his four daughters, get on a ship and cross the Atlantic. It ended tragically. The ship sunk. He got a telegram from his wife that said uh, all four of the daughters had drowned. And she said, I've been saved alone. And in his pain, he penned the famous words that Philip Bliss later put to a melody. And it was, it is well with my soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way or sorrow like sea billows roll. Right? I mean, that, that concept of being taught whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say it is well, it is well with my soul. That's the kind of centered, grounded courage and confidence that Paul said, like my life, I know, I know the secret, having a lot or having a little, having a good week, having a bad week, being in a terrible economic situation or being in a good one. I can do this. I can do it with the right attitude. It is well with my soul. Matter of fact, there's a phrase in that lyric of the last verse that you may think is actually in the Bible. Matter of fact, if I said, where's the verse that says, my faith shall be sight, you'll think, oh man, I got to look that up. Well, you'd look a long time in your Bible software because it's not a biblical phrase. It's a biblical concept. But it comes from that last line. When Spafford said, and Lord, haste the day, hurry it up. I can't wait to be there. When my faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. You want to know when it'll be really, really, really well with my soul? It's then. Even so, it is well with my soul. Hope your soul is in good shape. That's why I dare to be redundant this morning with a message about you being otherworldly focused. Let's power through this present reality with the right attitude and God will be pleased. Let's pray. God, help us have the perspective that we ought to have as hard as it is with circumstances being changed and difficulties in our schedules and the inconveniences and the disappointments. And God, even some here, I'm sure, that know people that are sick from this COVID virus that has been such the threat and such the scare over these past few months. God, we ask that you would not only comfort us and not only protect us and not only empower us, but that you'd give us the right attitude. As Proverbs 28.1 says, it's the wicked that should be skittish and always complaining and always afraid. They flee when no one pursues them. They hear the rustling of the leaves and they, 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 they jump. But it's the righteous that are as bold as a lion. God, I've been praying that for this church, as you know. You've heard me say it too many times. I want our church and the attitude of our church to be bold. We're unafraid. The government not only told us to stop singing, but came with guns to shut us down or to imprison our pastors or to execute us for following you, that we'd say, it is well with my soul. We can handle it. We wouldn't like it, obviously, to be afflicted, to be persecuted. Paul didn't like any of that, but he wasn't crushed and he wasn't despairing. So God, keep us there no matter what happens in the days ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.